0: American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give.
1: Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow.
0: And I'm Tom Crow.
1: Today, we're talking about George Washington and the very interesting question of whether or not he became Catholic before he died.
0: Cue dramatic music. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and this isn't some wild, oh, he's one of ours too speculation. This has actually been a question since shortly after he died in December of 1799.
1: We've talked several times in the past about how Washington was friendly towards Catholics and how he really led by example in making religious liberty a way of living in America.
0: Right. And three specific examples we've already given predate the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. The first was in episode 15 when we talked about Commodore John Barry, the father of the U.S. Navy, whom Washington made the first officer of the new U.S. Navy.
1: The second was in episode 52, when we talked about Lieutenant Colonel John Fitzgerald, who was a merchant in Alexandria, Virginia, and a friend of Washington's before the Revolutionary War, and then was one of Washington's most trusted aides de camp during the Revolution.
0: And the third time was in episode 69, when we talked about how Washington was instrumental in suppressing the anti-Catholic tradition of Pope Night. But there are many examples of Washington relying on Catholics, contributing to the construction of Catholic churches, expressing the warmest regards for Catholics, attending Mass, partaking in Catholic devotions, and standing up for Catholics against unjust religious attacks. We'll talk about a number of these, and then the evidence available for a deathbed conversion.
1: So we should start by recognizing a few things about Washington's religious allegiance, There is no doubt that he was not Catholic before his deathbed.
0: None at all. First, he was an Anglican and a keen member at Christ Church in Alexandria, a church which still stands today. Second, as one who was involved in the colonial military and government, he had to take an oath of affirming that he was not Catholic. Catholics were not permitted to hold such positions at the time, and the oath is clearly written by someone who knows the most essential truth about Catholicism. It reads in part... I do declare that there is no transubstantiation in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or in the elements of bread and wine at or after the consecration thereof by any person whatsoever. Pretty clear that no Catholic could take that oath. No, it would be a formal act of separation from the church and would thus bring about automatic excommunication.
1: Automatic excommunication comes with the third bit of not Catholic
0: evidence also. Right. Right. Washington was a Freemason.
1: Now, it's understandable that he was a Freemason for mostly the same reason why he took that oath. To be involved in the government and the military at the time, one basically had to be a Freemason. It wasn't required like the oath was, but it was just what one did. So he was a Freemason. And the history of Freemasonry includes pretty significant anti-Catholic activity.
0: But even more than that, as the Vatican has stated, the principles that one swears to when one joins a Messiah association, are irreconcilable with Catholic teaching. So to become a Freemason is also a formal act of separation from the Church and incurs excommunication late sententiae.
1: So those are the major bits which show that he was definitely not Catholic before his potential deathbed conversion. Let's look at the many examples of him being far more pro-Catholic than his peers and contemporaries.
0: Sure. So first are the many Catholics whom he relied upon to win the Revolutionary War. Well, we might say, well, that's no big deal. He was desperate and wanted to win and those folks were the best available, so of course. But that's just not how things were done at the time. Again, the colonies had forbidden Catholics to rise in the ranks and be important persons, and times of war did not change that. But a partial list of Catholics whom Washington relied upon to win the Revolutionary War includes at least eight prominent figures. There were three Irishmen, Commodore John Barry and Lieutenant Colonel John Fitzgerald, whom we mentioned before, plus Stephen Moylan, who held a number of important positions in the Continental Army, including Muster Master General and Secretary Aid to General Washington. There were two Polish officers, first, Brigadier General Casimir Pulaski, who was chiefly responsible for establishing the American cavalry as a fighting force rather than just a scouting and reconnaissance group,
1: He also famously saved Washington's life at one point. We're definitely going to do an episode on him.
0: Right. And Brigadier General Tadeusz Kosciuszko, a brilliant battlefield engineer who may also qualify for his own episode. And then there were three Frenchmen, Lieutenant General Jean-Baptiste Rochambeau, who led the French infantry that aided in the decisive siege at Yorktown. Plus Admiral Francois de Grasse, who commanded the French fleet that blockaded the coast at Yorktown, thus preventing Lord Cornwallis from being fortified or evacuated. And then there was, of course, the Marquis de Lafayette, the brilliant French military leader who came over at 19 years old and was probably Washington's most important lieutenant
1: quite a remarkable group, Catholic or not. The revolution was such a near run thing, it's hard to imagine Washington winning without the aid of all of those Catholic
0: military leaders. Seriously. And this is not even getting into the regular Catholics already here in the colonies who would likely have joined the cause of the rebellion as soldiers.
1: Right. There weren't a lot of them, but there had to have been some.
0: So Washington relied on Catholics among his most trusted and relied upon generals, and again, this wasn't a typical stance. Washington himself had to take an anti-Catholic oath to be an officer in the British military. Wars had been fought along religious lines, and populations were persecuted for their religious beliefs, both in Europe and all over the Americas. In fact, Washington personally put an end to one such anti-Catholic demonstration, which we mentioned before, that was Pope Night, the American version of Britain's Guy Fawkes Night. It was in 1775 when he called the festivities ridiculous and childish and said that those who took part were void of common sense. Now, it is true that he put the kibosh on Pope Knight because he was trying to win the alliance of the British-controlled Canadian colonies, but even if that move was motivated primarily by politics, his later moves suggest that he really did believe that the anti-popery demonstrations were idiotic.
1: And hey, Pope Knight wasn't revived after the Canadians didn't join the Revolution, so Washington's words, for whatever reason, had that positive effect.
0: And he would write many more friendly words to Catholics and make more pro-Catholic gestures after the Revolution and once he was president. Washington was known to attend Mass on a number of occasions at St. Mary's in Philadelphia, while there for the Continental Congress and later for the Constitutional Convention. St. Mary and nearby St. Joseph were, for a time, the only churches in the English-speaking world where Mass could be celebrated publicly, and Washington went as a sign that Catholics were to be regarded as citizens of the new nation just as much as anyone else.
1: Also, in November of 1781, he led a very large delegation of American leaders. They went to St. Mary for a solemn mass of thanksgiving for the victory at Yorktown and the successful conclusion of the revolution. At this mass, the Te Deum, the great chant of thanksgiving to God the Father was chanted.
0: He carried on extensive correspondence with the Jesuit priest John Carroll, who became the first bishop of Baltimore in 1789, the same year Washington became president, as well as with John Carroll's cousin, Charles. Charles was known as Charles Carroll of Carrollton. He was the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence, and by some accounts, he was the wealthiest man in the Thirteen Colonies.
1: Father John and Charles were both part of the group that the Continental Congress sent to Canada in 1776 to try to convince the Canadians to join the Americans in rebellion. We talked about that ill-fated mission and its unexpected happy consequence in Episode 3. Yeah. All the way back then. Right.
0: God writes straight with crooked lines. But you'll have to go back to listen to Episode 3 to find out why. Anyhow, when he was sworn in as president, Washington received a letter from the Carrolls and a few other prominent Catholics, both clergy and laity, which congratulated him on being elected and sworn in as the first president. His generous response included the following paragraph. As mankind becomes more liberal, they will be more apt to allow that all those who conduct themselves as worthy members of the community are equally entitled to the protection of civil government. I hope ever to see America among the foremost nations in examples of justice and liberality and I presume that your fellow citizens would not forget the patriotic part which you took in the accomplishment of their revolution and the establishment of their government or the important assistance which they received from a nation in which the Roman Catholic faith is professed His opening line about mankind becoming more liberal that's liberal in the classic sense demonstrates an overly optimistic belief in the inexorable positive trajectory of man, but the sentiment he expresses is quintessentially American. Right.
1: Contrast that with a passage from a letter he wrote to Edward Newenham, who was an Irish politician in 1792, regarding the ongoing sectarian violence happening in Ireland, he wrote, I regret exceedingly that the disputes between the Protestants and Roman Catholics should be carried to the serious alarming height mentioned in your letters. Religious controversies are always productive of more acrimony and irreconcilable hatreds than those which spring from any other cause. And I was not without hope that the enlightened and liberal policy of the present age would have put an effectual stop to contentions of this kind.
0: Exactly. The march of liberty and liberality wasn't exactly an irresistible force, but at least for this country, he was able to set an example.
1: And he became even more explicit about religious liberty in a letter he wrote to a Jewish congregation in 1790. He had gone to Newport, Rhode Island, and while there was presented a letter by leaders of the congregation. The letter asked him to affirm that the religious toleration that they had heard so much about would indeed be something they could rely upon in this new nation.
0: Washington's response read in part: The citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation. All possess alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights." For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support.
1: So there he is again, expressing an opinion of what religious liberty means that was far beyond what was generally the case in the world. One's religious belief and practice is not something that the government grants to citizens. That liberty is something that the government is to protect from others' attempt at oppression. And it is certainly not something that the government should ever even consider interfering in. And keep in mind that this was 1790, so it was before the Bill of Rights was ratified enshrining the free exercise of religion in national law.
0: Oh, what an ideal. Then the last thing we'll discuss before the particulars of his potential deathbed conversion is his monetary support of Catholic churches. We're not sure how many Catholic churches he contributed to in all, but we know about three. There was St. Augustine's in Philadelphia, which nativist rioters burned down in 1844. We talked about that in episode 80. Plus one in Baltimore that we've seen references to, but we can't track down which church it was specifically that they're referencing. And then the third is St. Mary's Basilica in Alexandria, Virginia.
1: Yes, where I worked for two years. While working there, we all knew that tradition said Washington had made the first contribution to the church's construction, but there was never any documentary proof of it that I was able to find anyways. It was just left to tradition. Well, it turns out that the evidence is actually in one of George Washington's diaries. After the Revolutionary War, but before he was elected president, Washington attended a St. Patrick's Day dinner at the Alexandria home of his good friend, Andrew and former aide-de-camp John Fitzgerald, Washington records this event as having been a fundraiser and says that he contributed what in today's dollars would be about $1,200. So now we know.
0: And that's very cool. Okay, so we've established Washington as at least Catholic sympathetic, certainly more so than was typical of the time. Now on to the deathbed and his potential conversion. Washington left the presidency in 1797 after famously declining to run for a third term. He returned to his beloved Mount Vernon and his life as a planter, but he was not to enjoy his retirement for long. On December thirteenth, seventeen ninety-nine, he went for a ride in terrible weather. Didn't change out of his wet clothes quickly enough so as not to be late for supper, and just twenty-one hours later, he was dead. According to the reports, there are a few chief reasons to believe that Washington converted before he died. First, it is reported that in those last hours, at Washington's request. Jesuit Father Leonard Neal was summoned from Piscataway, Maryland, which is directly across the Potomac River from Mount Vernon. Father Neal, it is said, was with Washington for about four hours before death came. Second, it is reported that while he was president and living in Philadelphia, Washington had a picture of the Blessed Mother hanging above his bed, and not just any image of the Blessed Mother, but her depicted as the Immaculate Conception.
1: And that's interesting, because that is the title of Mary that the American bishops and the Vatican selected to be the patroness of our country a few decades later. Right.
0: The third point offered was his attendance at Mass and his monetary support of Catholic churches. And the fourth point is testimony from one of his servants, I presume a slave, who once said, and this is how it's written in the testimony, before he eats, do this way, making the sign of the cross. I don't know what it means, but he always do it.
1: So Washington called for a Catholic priest when he was in extremis and fading fast. He always made the sign of the cross. He had an image of the Immaculate Conception over his bed, and he had a history of being very favorably disposed to Catholics and the upbuilding of the church in this country. It... Builds a very interesting
0: case. It sure does. Now, none of it is definitely conclusive, and we can go through each point and point out the problems with it. The image of the Blessed Mother may just have been a gift from a cherished friend like one of the carols, and he recognized the beauty of the image and so hung it in his private chamber. He certainly couldn't hang it in public, but didn't want to get rid of it, so he hung it in his room without intending religious devotion. Maybe he made the sign of the cross because it was something he encountered among his Catholic friends, and he decided to adopt it as a private devotion, but not necessarily as a Catholic thing.
1: His contributions to Catholic churches and attending masses could just be seen as him fulfilling what he believed about the importance of a religiously pluralistic society. He probably contributed to the construction of non-Anglican Protestant churches and synagogues and attended their services too, so it's not such a big deal.
0: All true. And as for Father Neal, well, just because he was there doesn't mean Washington necessarily converted. Neal never said he did, so we don't have direct evidence. And wouldn't Neal have said so at some later date? Well, no, not necessarily. You're right. Not necessarily. In fact, I'd say Neal would be more likely to keep it to himself than to go telling the world. After all, once Washington was dead, who would vouch for Neal's words? No one around the great Washington would want to accept that he'd swum the Tiber at the last second, so Father Neal would be denounced. Father Neal's silence tells us nothing definitive one way or the other, but there really is only one reason a dying man in Washington's position would summon a Catholic priest like that, and it isn't to discuss the finer points of theology. No. No. And there is a tradition among Jesuits from that era that Washington did actually convert on his deathbed. But again, that isn't conclusive.
1: And on that cliffhanger, we'll leave it. We'll provide links in the show notes so you can look into the question yourself and learn more about perhaps the greatest American ever, the, well, maybe Catholic George Washington. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And we ask you to consider supporting the work of SQPN.
0: Yes, now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 per month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including American Catholic History, making your gift go even further. If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, Now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today.
1: To learn more about the question of George Washington's deathbed conversion, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and bourbon country, please visit sqpn.com slash history. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noel Hester Crow.
0: And I'm Tom Crow.
1: Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.